from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. This podcast will navigate the problems that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences as underrepresented professionals in the music industry. Today, we will be talking with Kelly Corcoran. She was assistant conductor here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra from 2004 to 2007. She was subsequently the assistant conductor of the Nashville Symphony Orchestra, conductor of the Legend of Zelda Symphony of the Goddesses concert tour, and she is the founding artistic director and conductor of Intersection, a flexible, contemporary music ensemble based in Nashville. Kelly Corcoran, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited. We're so I miss the good happy. old days of Canton. <laughs> yeah, we're we're so happy uh, to have you here today to talk um, about several things. We have quite a few things that we want to get through, um, but. I just kind of wanted to start off this whole conversation with an overall scope of the orchestral industry and kind of taking a look at it pre-pandemic a little bit and then during and then post-pandemic. How do you view the industry and how like how did you view it and has it changed at all or what do you what do you see it looking like now that we're in this whole situation? Yeah, um I'm feeling excited and optimistic about the experimentation that I see happening from orchestras around the world. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, of course, this is a very difficult time for orchestras. And here in Nashville, for example, the Nashville Symphony has furloughed all musicians for the entire year, mm -hmm. and they're not doing any programs um, at the moment. Um, so it is certainly a dark time. And I don't mean to kind of dismiss that with my optimism, but I'm happy to see that many orchestras are um, being spontaneous, you know, doing things with smaller ensembles, being out in the street, going mm -hmm. to people where they are, and um, reimagining the ways in which we as orchestral musicians can engage with our community. Mm -hmm. So um, if I look pre-pandemic, I think that that spirit of innovation and experimentation wasn't always there in every orchestra. Um, I think that some of these older models um, persisted for a very important, valuable reason, right? Like it's great to play Mozart and Beethoven in a beautiful big concert hall in the ways that we have for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, and so I'm not saying we should discard those old models, but I think it's exciting to see new ideas and new stimulation coming into the field. And um, so I think in some ways this global pandemic has uh, been a forced seismic shift in our industry that has required all of us to really examine all that we do. And I don't know what that will look like in the future for our industry. I think a lot of that is yet to be seen in terms of how long <laughs> all of this goes on and how we're able to adapt and even funding models and how they change. And that's a real part of the future of our orchestra. How do we create sustainable funding to pay players, you know, and right. continue to do this. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm generally optimistic about mm -hmm. the the excitement, or excuse me, the innovation that mm -hmm. I've seen from orchestras around yeah. the world. That's awesome. Wonderful. Tell us a little bit about what your experience has been as a female conductor in the field. I know uh, you've been mentored by one of the great American female conductors, Marin Alsop of the Baltimore Symphony. Tell us a little bit about your experience as a female conductor in the field. Sure. Um, so Marin has a conducting fellowship that she has done for many years called the Taki Alsup Conducting Fellowship. And so in in the pandemic since March, we've been meeting many of these female conducting colleagues from all around the world that have been um, a recipient of this conducting fellowship. And so it's been great to connect with female colleagues and share experiences and have conversations that 
are related to the question that you're asking me, right? Like, what is it like to be a female conductor in this industry? And so again, with my optimism, I think things are changing. Um, we're seeing many more female conductors on the podium all around the world now than when I was studying conducting at Indiana University in 2001, which was now 19 years ago, which is crazy. Um, you know, I was the only female conducting student in my class. Mm. And I think at that time, even in those 19 years, it was a very, very different time than it is today. I think that, um, you know, many major orchestras now are being led by females all around the world. So, um, but for myself personally, I mean, I certainly have faced um, a lot of, you know, uh, scrutiny over the way I'm putting my hair back or what I'm wearing or, oh, wow, how can she conduct in those heels or, you know, <laughs> things that um, I'm not sure my male colleagues receive that same kind of scrutiny. Mm -hmm. um, and I think just, you know, you're always wondering um, the things we hear about how women in leadership roles are often perceived differently than men, um, whether that might be when you uh, are assertive or, you know, taking kind of a leadership stance. Um, sometimes that's not seen as a positive thing mm. from women. Um, whereas man, with men, it can be like good for them. They're taking this leadership role. So all those little nuances, I think, can continue to persist in our society, which I'm sure is not, I'm not saying anything new that you all haven't mm -hmm. heard before, but um, it's, it, it's, you know, it's a challenge for sure. But I, I think that it's a new day. I have a quick follow-up <laughs> question to that. Um, is there, have you felt that there's a difference between the way musicians react to a female conductor mm -hmm. and the way patrons, board members, mm. uh, orchestra staff, the non-musical or the, the people in the audience? Is there a difference in the way that those two groups of people perceive a female conductor? Um, I mean, for me, when I'm on the podium, I'm thinking about the music and I'm putting the music first and I'm there to do a job and I'm there to connect with the musicians. And I'm there to, um, yeah, like create some kind of shared vision. And so I think hopefully through that idea of here we are, let's work together and that mutual respect, um, I've been able to have a really, a lot of really great artistic experiences. So I think there perhaps is a, a distinction between, you know, musicians are there to make music. And if, if you're doing that and you're prepared and you have good ideas and, and, you know, you're inspiring, then here we go, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, so perhaps, but I, I think ultimately, like I'm hopeful for the day when we don't need to have these conversations anymore. Mm -hmm. I think that like when I talk to my, and I, I and this is not me um, trying to, you know, criticize your question, because I think it is a relevant question. But I think often my female colleagues and I, we, we, we want to get to a point where we don't have to have mm -hmm. these, you know, conversations where that's not a question that needs to be asked mm -hmm. anymore. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, um, for sure. Absolutely. Who and knows? Maybe honestly, we'll get there. <laughs> honestly, that, uh, yeah. a lot of, quite honestly, a lot of the questions that we're going to ask everybody throughout the course of this right. podcast, we hope that there comes a day when we don't have to ask yeah. them yeah. to Absolutely. exactly to your point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. Did, were you, I, I've heard a story from the members of the Canton Symphony. We'll edit this out if this wasn't you, but <laughs> did you have to conduct Till Eulenspiegel at a rehearsal on short notice with the Canton yes, Symphony? I think perhaps, yeah. You are spoken very, very highly of by the people who were there at the time. Uh, they remember you being extremely well prepared and ready to go <laughs> when uh, Maestro was unable to to make that rehearsal. So, kudos to you. You're well, to this day you. you're remembered. You're remembered very <laughs> no, highly. No, but here. you know, I mean, look, it's your question related to being a female conductor is a 100% valid question because it is still it is still an issue in our field today. Mm -hmm. You know, and it and it does. Um, it, I think it depends on the community where you are too. Mm -hmm. I think in different communities, um, different communities are more open to, you know, having a female in a leadership role than others maybe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah. It persists in varying environments. <laughs> right. I think, you know, speaking about being in, in leadership positions and, and, and being in charge, you are the founder of Intersection. And I, I kind of wanted to just take a moment to talk about the journey of what it was like to found that organization and what pushed you to create something like what Intersection is today. So, sure. yeah. So, um, so an Intersection is now in 
uh, we're now in our seventh year, which mm -hmm. is kind of amazing. Um, but so I first came to Nashville, let's see, um, in around 2003, 2004, before I came to Canton, actually, I worked here in Nashville for one year at the Nashville Opera, and I founded a community orchestra, the Nashville Philharmonic Orchestra, which mm. is still going. Um, and then I left, went to Canton for three years and came back in 2007. So as a result, I had been in Nashville for quite some time, or at least had some kind of historical artistic, um, you know, interaction with the city that that was you know, over a long span of time. And so for me, I saw that there were some gaps in the musical scene here in Nashville. When you come to Nashville, we celebrate that we are a music city and we are a music city. And I think that um, when you look statistically, like from the Chamber of Commerce, they often say that there are more people working in music here in Nashville per capita than anywhere else in the world. Mm. So for the population of our city, more people working in music here than anywhere else. Um, and compared to London and New York and LA as a global music center, and yet there was no professional contemporary music ensemble here mm. in Nashville. So anyways, um, there was a gap in the community here related to contemporary music. There was no professional contemporary music ensemble here in Nashville. And uh, Nashville being a somewhat traditional city, um, the presentation of, of classical music was still relatively um, just one way of presenting classical music here in our town. So Intersection was created to really innovate, try new ways of engaging with, with music making, getting people close to the musicians, uh, partnership models, all these kind of things. So really kind of throwing the old out the window <laughs> and trying to create a new model for how right. we engage with new music. Right. So when you when it came to creating an organization like that and kind of maybe a little bit on the administrative side of this, but what were the what pushback? What were the obstacles to get something like this going? It is Music City, but I'm sure there were people who weren't necessarily keen on this idea or didn't think it would even work. Yeah. I mean, so for me, from day one, it, there were some deal breakers for me. I knew I wanted the musicians to be paid. Um, I wasn't going to compromise that, you know, um, and so therefore there was a certain budget required to put on the first concert. Mm -hmm. I think we were trying to raise $20,000 for our first kind of concert. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in terms of obstacles, I would go to funders and I thankfully, because I had been in Nashville for a little while, had some relationships with funders. And so that kind of let the door be open, which was great. But, um, you know, I'd say, hey, we've got these artists, we've got this idea, here's our business plan, we really need this. And he'd say, okay, well, you made the case that, you know, this is high quality and no one's doing this, but what you haven't proven is, do people want it? Mm -hmm. um, so I, that was just a really tough, important lesson for me to learn. Like you can make the best, amazing, shiny thing, um, but if people don't, aren't interested, you know, <laughs> or if you haven't made the case for why this is needed, um, I thought that that was really important, you know, and really interesting to get that kind of mm -hmm. feedback. Yeah. Um, so, and I, and I think even this concept of paying the musicians, there was even pushback on that, right? Like, well, why don't you get people to just volunteer at the beginning, get your name out there and, you know, start small. And I was like, no, you know, you wouldn't ask um, doctors and nurses to volunteer while a new health clinic is set up. You know, you have to pay people for their work and their time. And, and so even just having those conversations about um, the value of art, and mm -hmm. compensating people appropriately for their time. Um, and that continues to be an obstacle today, right? Like as we as we talk about the value of art in our community and paying mm -hmm. for art. Um, so those were definitely obstacles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have quite an impressive advisory board of intersection. In addition to your mentor, Marin Alsop, you have Bela Fleck, Jennifer Higdon, and Richard Danielpour among many other luminary names in the classical music world. How did you manage to bring all these people on board with your vision? Yeah, um, so Bela Fleck, for example, um, lives in Nashville and the Nashville Symphony had commissioned Bela to write a banjo concerto for him in the orchestra. And um, I was the one that conducted the first reading of mm. that banjo 
concerto. So, you know, that's one example of, so then therefore Bela and I had that relationship of that musical experience. So I could then therefore approach him, you know, with intersection and uh, same with Richard, um, Daniel Poor and Jennifer Higdon, both of whom had done a lot of work with the Nashville Symphony. Mm -hmm. So definitely that relationship kind of allowed me to meet a lot of different people that mm -hmm. opened doors. Um, but I think the thing about intersection is it's a very defined mission and vision. Mm -hmm. It's a very clearly articulated idea of who we are as an ensemble. And I think that that helped in making the case mm. to get people on board by saying this is new music in a new way, mm -hmm. you know, um, that that aligned with the values of what Jennifer and Richard and Vela cared about. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of an easy sell for them. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I think yeah. that they could get behind right. it. They, they believed in the mission of it. Right. Tell me. Tracy Silverman is one more. I'll just say Tracy Silverman. Yeah. He's an electric violinist who also lives in Nashville. And so for somebody like Tracy, I think he um, was and continues to be excited about, you know, these new music ensembles and the new music scene bubbling up in Nashville, because a lot of folks who've been here for a long time, um, they've seen little rumblings of it. But I think in the last five years or so, it's really blossomed. There have mm -hmm. been other organizations, too, that have come into being. Mm -hmm. Tell me really quickly, uh, where do you draw the musicians for Intersection? Is it any Nashville symphony players or freelance players at some of the smaller regional orchestras in the area? Where, where do you get your musicians? Yeah, it's a variety. Um, so, um, for example, the pianist um, is a colleague of mine from when I was at IU. She's just an amazing new music player and love working with her. And so she drives up from Florida and plays with us. Um, yeah. But Many of them are perhaps faculty at Blair, the Blair School mm -hmm. of Music at Vanderbilt University. Um, for example, Molly Barth, a flute player mm -hmm. who was a founding member of Eighth Blackbird, now teaches at Blair. And so, you know, it's a variety of local players. Um, uh, a ch our cellist used to be a member of the Nashville Symphony, um, but now is doing um, social work. But, you know, he's just so, you know, it's just like right. really kind of all kinds of people mm -hmm. playing with us. Um, and so we try to have a mix of local players and then bring people in intentionally from right. other communities as well. Um, Nashville's pre-pandemic, Nashville <laughs> had a lot of performances going on right. all the time. And so oftentimes symphony players might not be available. And, you know, if you're doing unusual repertoire, um, yeah, you got to find people <laughs> wherever find they are. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of uh, about intersection is very intentional and uh, is very well thought out. And I just wanted to take a second to read um, your either vision statement and the mission statement to expand and shift the perspectives of audiences and musicians of all ages through the creation, cultivation, and performance of contemporary music, a vital, thriving, and inspiring form of art. And I just thought that was a really, I mean, it's a great statement. I think that's really well thought out and put together. Um, but these projects that you do and the, in the mission and the vision of what this organization is, uh, is this what you kind of view the future of, orchestral and classical music to be and, and 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 then again like where does this work fit into the overall longevity of the orchestral art form yeah um i think with intersection the crafting of that vision seemed natural because we're doing contemporary repertoire so mm -hmm. Therefore, it inherently is dealing with the issues of today mm -hmm. and the inspiration of our time which often may have a political, you know, aspect or a social aspect or a cultural aspect or all these things, because that is, that is today, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so therefore that vision of expanding and shifting perspectives mm -hmm. kind of got to what, what we felt was the ultimate point, which is to really change the way we see things or, or um, expand the way we see things so we can hear diverse voices and opinions mm -hmm. and open up you know, to receive yeah. <laughs> the diversity of our world. And so connecting that with the orchestral field in general, I do think that that is an important part of it, right? Like we have to, we have to find a way to connect our work to the relevance of our time and our lives. And if we can't do that, then I think um, we will have a difficult future, you know? And so, I mean, I believe Mozart and Tchaikovsky and Brahms and you know, Florence Price or whoever we're talking about, that all of these artists are absolutely relevant today. And I, but I think it's just on us 
as an industry and field to kind of make those connecting points. So yeah, I do think, um, I think oftentimes orchestras have historically put artistic excellence at the peak of the ultimate goal of what we're striving to achieve. And even when you look at cultural language, you know, these things about the crown jewel, you know, and all these kind of uh, this language that um, can potentially be not inclusive of everyone, right? Um, and so, or even when we're talking about the crown jewels and, you know, that's talking about wealth and, you know, all these things that may not be relevant to everyone mm -hmm. in our communities. And so I think it is worth kind of a reckoning in our industry as we think about the language we use, the way we describe the work we do and why it matters today. Yeah. And I'm a both and person mm -hmm. because I think you can have high artistic integrity and excellence and <laughs> all of these other things that we're right. talking about it's not like you have to choose right it just is harder to be you know expanding and shifting those perspectives to include all those things yeah yeah so you mentioned uh, shortly ago how nashville is a more traditional city and there wasn't something like intersection at the time you founded the group with that in mind, how has Intersection been received by the city of Nashville and who's in the audience? And is it sort of a devoted niche following or have you seen it grow over the years and expand into a broad and wide array of people from the Nashville community? Yeah, I mean, I will say Nashville is rapidly changing. And I would say even in the seven years since we started to now, um, that description of Nashville as a traditional city has changed. Mm. You know, we have a lot more people moving here from all around the world and, um, you know, gentrification and all the things that go with that income, you know, inequality. And, you know, anyways, that's another discussion. <laughs> but that that kind of reckoning and reshaping of what Nashville is has kind of um redefined a little bit who we are as an organization, because now there are a lot of really experimental, innovative colleagues you know here in the community and not to say they weren't here before i mean of course they were here before but i think there's a groundswell that's occurred in the last five to ten years that's been really exciting um so to to the point of who our audience is um i think that that partnerships have been a key part of the work we do so we've worked with nashville and harmony which is an lgbtq plus chorus we've worked with um Fisk University, um, really important HBCU here in Nashville. So we've worked with lots of different partners. And so our community can kind of change uh, and, and audience can change a little bit according to who the partner is for that particular concert. That's been a big way that we've kind of strategically worked to grow our community. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of educational programs too. Mm -hmm. And so young people, that's also a big robust part of our right. audience too. Right. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. So uh, in, when you were talking uh, previously, in your previous answer, you mentioned a composer that I discovered during the pandemic, Florence Price, a wonderful African-American composer who I had literally never heard of before the pandemic. And now I'm desperately eager to conduct her symphonies and her Mississippi River Suite and many other pieces I've discovered. Uh, a current project that you're working on involves female composers. Listen, current project at intersection you've commissioned 25 female composers to write pieces for solo instrument uh this is sort of another topic that we hope to someday not even have to ask a question about but tell us tell us a little bit about your listen project sure so um you know, the passage of the amendment that gave women the right to vote was just celebrated. It was the 100th anniversary mm -hmm. of that passage. And so Tennessee was actually the crucial state that when Tennessee as a state voted to approve women's suffrage, then it was then it became a con part of the Constitution. So um, we had created this idea of a listen initiative, lifting up the voices of women composers um, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the passage of that amendment. Um, and then, of course, and that would have been in August. Right. <laughs> and so then, of course, of course, coronavirus happened. And so we had to kind of reevaluate how are we going to celebrate the voices of women in our community, in the world, um, and lift up the voices of female composers. And so in the midst of COVID, um, I thought, well, let's do solo pieces. <laughs> um, let's 
do things that are virtual, engaging with young people, because of course many people are distance learning even still, and so creating quality uh, virtual content would be great. Um, and then of course, giving our players more repertoire that they can play. You know, um, a lot of our work we do, we might have a pop-up solo musician playing somewhere, you know, a solo bassoon piece or oboe piece. And so to say, hey, here's another piece that you can play to engage with young people and different audiences. Um, so we applied for one of the NEA CARES grants mm -hmm. um, for $50,000 and we were awarded one of those grants. Wow. And so that is why we were able to move forward with that project. It was a very, again, to the point of like clear, compact, um, not trying to do too many things. Like this is it, this is what we're doing. Um, I think that that created a strong application that they that they then funded which helped us move forward with the project but it's been really fun i mean i it's a two-year project so we're in our first year now um next year will be our second year and i we're still in the early stages i'm still confirming all of the composers that will be commissioning so i have about 14 of them confirmed right now um and it's really fun i mean we're pairing them with our you know players and um each, and we're also gonna capture the creative process a little bit and do interviews with the composer and performer and create curriculum to go along with them. And so it'll all live on our website, but it's just really fun to interact with 25 composers, you know? Absolutely. And are many, are most of these composers younger, more emerging composers, or do you also have a few more established composers as well? Yeah, I'm trying to really, um, be intentional about diversity of age, of culture, race, ethnicity, all of those things. Um, and so, I, I mean, of the 14 we have thus far, um, I would say maybe two or three are a little bit older generation, um, maybe seven or so are like mid-career, <laughs> you know, I mean, so it's true, it's kind of the gamut, but certainly like I'm very eager to, um, commission younger composers to early stage career com uh, composers as right. well. Right. I, it's, it, we're really excited that this year we have a uh, composer fellow who is going to be writing a piece for our advanced youth symphony. Uh, her name is Molly and she, uh, Molly Leach, and she is, has been wonderful to work with and she's taken this whole year to write a piece. So that's kind of been our own fun little composer project. It's really fun to watch young composers blossom and, and figure out their voice and their ideas. That's been, I think, really enjoyable for the two of us. Um, but, you know, this idea of education and giving people a place to learn and to grow, education is such a big part of what you do at Intersection. And I, I'm the education director at, at Canton, so it has a special place in my heart. But how, how do you think that orchestras could do a better job of, uh, educating young people and our community about orchestral music? I think that sounds like a very broad question, but what do, what do you think that orchestras could be doing better to make our education more effective and more relevant to what our community actually is today? Right. Um, well, if I look at some models that I think have been really great, for example, the Detroit Symphony, mm -hmm. um, and I've conducted there a few times um, on their educational programs, but they um, want to be, um, you know, they, the most inclusive orchestra in the world. And so this idea that all of their, I don't know about all, but, you know, well, no, I think all of their young person's concerts are, um, you know, on a web broadcast. So people anywhere in the world can tune in and watch their young person's concerts. And they were doing this well before coronavirus. Of course, they were already had a whole kind of infrastructure set mm -hmm. up to broadcast their programming. And um, so I think that is one answer in this idea that if we're gonna keep doing the traditional young person's concert, which I think is an important part of the formula of orchestras. I mean, you've got a whole big, orchestra. And I think kids getting to hear that and experience that is really important. Um, but finding a way to reach the kids who may not be able to be there in the concert hall, mm -hmm. I think is a, an important part of that answer. Um, 
Then I think from the programming side, um, certainly, again, talking about the Detroit Symphony, I mean, they bring in um, local personalities, local community members. They um, talk about equity and lifting up composers of, co of color in their programming. I mean, doing things that are absolutely relevant to their community and their programming is, I think, really important, too. Um, but you know, when I was reflecting on the answer to this question, because I had the chance to look at some of these questions beforehand, you know, I was thinking about this idea that um, I think a lot of it is based on relationships with educators in the community mm -hmm. and principals in the community and answering the question of how can we celebrate orchestral music, but reach kids. I think it has to start from talking to teachers mm -hmm. and figuring out where are their needs and how can we help support their needs in the classroom? Because I think one overarching goal that I've learned through my life is like, if we sit in our little box and make a beautiful little program and go, whoo, here you go. Like um, we can't create stuff in a vacuum. We right. have to have that community based participation in the making of everything. And right. so I think getting them, uh, teachers and community members and principals involved mm -hmm. uh, in, in answering those questions is, is really important for all orchestras to do. Right, right, yeah. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think mainstream and more traditional orchestras, the, the standard large orchestra with a subscription series, uh, could learn from an organization like Intersection? I think... Um, that partnership piece has been really a core identity piece for us. We have worked with over 40 partners in seven years. Every program we do has several partners related to it. So for example, when we we hosted Hannibal Lacumbe, who's a great composer, he was in Nashville for 10 days. Um, and you know, he came to Nashville and we did a program at Fisk University. Um, we worked with Metro Arts and the Curb Center um, for Arts, Enterprise and Policy at Vanderbilt to do a talk about um, social justice in the arts. We performed at the Juvenile Detention Center. We performed at the Davidson County Jail. Um, we worked, we performed at the library, at the Civil Rights Room at the library. So, I mean, right there, I've put five partners, right. you know, and I could keep going because there were more <laughs> partners in that program. He talked to the students at Fisk, you know. So he had this whole residency where he was engaging with the community and all these different layers beyond just the performance. And so I think um, that oftentimes orchestras when, you know, especially a, a full-time orchestra that has programs every week, you know, it's impossible to think that you could really build that kind of partnership around mm. every program, right? Just because managing all that, I think the logistics of it can be really challenging. It's certainly much more time um, invasive, you know, to try to manage all of these partnerships. But I can say that um, the end product and how it really connects with the community is so worth the time and effort. So even with Intersection, we've done partnerships I mentioned earlier with Nashville and Harmony. That particular thing, we commissioned a work by T.J. Cole, a wonderful composer, mm -hmm. and she wrote a piece for chorus and ensemble about um, thinking about gender in a non-binary way. And she took the the words from Nashville and Harmony from the chorus members and wove them into the work. And, you know, administratively, it was a 50-50 split. We split the cost of everything, split the cost of the venue, the musicians, the commission. And so therefore, every decision, we were both equal partners mm -hmm. in every decision from the poster design, <laughs> you know, to program order to everything. And so, um, I just think that it has strengthened our artistic programs. I think it has strengthened our impact in the community and made for more meaningful stuff. So I think in terms of what orchestras, more traditional orchestras could learn from intersection is to find ways to integrate partnerships mm -hmm. into the work of orchestras, um, into their performances, mm -hmm. you know, whether that be something on display in the lobby that connects to the program right. or, you, you know what I mean? Just, right. I think that that can really, be an important lesson to think about. Yeah, we, we've hit the 30 minute mark, but we just have a few more questions and we're of course gonna edit all of our bumblings out of this, I'm sure. Nathan's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and I maybe have been long-winded, so I'm no, sorry. No, no, we, <laughs> is, we love it. We absolutely love this it. This is great. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm learning 
so much from you right now. I think this is wonderful. I'm mentally and actually taking notes. So, um, it's, it's helping me. Um, you mentioned that you are getting your master's in public health, which might seem completely unrelated to what you do as a career. So I just wanted to ask you why, why are you getting, what, what, what led to this decision to go back and get your master's in public health? Sure. Um, so I decided to get a master's in public health before coronavirus started. So that was kind of interesting. I started in January and, and of course had no idea that it would be such a field that is now at the center of right. our global discourse. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of things from a personal standpoint, I just love to learn. And my mom is actually in her 60s and getting a law degree. And so I thought, hey, it's always good to learn. And um, I just was interested in public health as a field. But um, so how does that connect to my work as an artist and why was I interested in doing it? Um, health is defined as like um, a complete state of physical, mental and social well-being not just the absence of disease by the mm. World Health Organization. Anyway, mm. so this idea that our health is about our social wellness, our, our mental health wellness, all of these things. And so I think as artists, um, I believe that our work as artists is absolutely a part of the health of our communities. Um, and so I think we're seeing that today, of course, with coronavirus too, right? Like that, how are we, how are we able to deal with the stress of our time, but by, um, you know, maybe a musical experience can help us find solace or help us feel connected or help us find meaning in our world. So um, I'm still trying to figure out how all this is going to come out in my work as an artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I can say that, um, like with Intersection, for example, we are looking at potentially starting the Lullaby Project, with, which is a program with Car that Carnegie Hall does mm -hmm. um, that gets moms writing a lullaby for their newborn baby. Mm. And so it has all these beautiful outcomes of maternal health and, um, you know, attachment between the mother and the child. And so there are tangible health outcomes to artistic programs. Mm -hmm. And so I think as we look to the future and as we try to find solutions for a lot of the things we talked about today, um, I think the more we can make the case for why the arts are an essential part mm -hmm. of the health of our communities, I think it's only going to strengthen all of our right. work and our impact. Yeah. Bill is coming on. <laughs> but yeah. I, I, I like kind of following up with that is this idea of, of, of music being essential and, 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 and crucial to the well-being of our communities. How can orchestras engage in that sort of discourse Maybe it's about public health. Maybe it's about mental health. Maybe it's about other things, systemic racism, LGBTQ+, these different ideas. How can we engage in those issues? Because it seems like a lot of nonprofits in general seem to be a little hesitant to dive into the deep end, so to speak. Um, how can orchestras talk about those issues in a way that is authentic and intentional and reflective of who we are as an organization? Yeah, I think one one piece is acknowledging that it's ongoing work, um, that it's not like you go to a little workshop or you put some composers of color on your programs and, you know, <laughs> boom, you're good, you know, um, that like this is um, ongoing work that we all need to engage in every day of our lives. Um, here in Nashville, I mean, Nashville has put forward some really great training programs for arts leaders in the community. They had a cadre of racial equity and arts leadership. Um, just yesterday, I attended a thing where they put together white arts leaders to try to learn how to be better anti-racists, you know, and um, continue to have these conversations, continue to look at the power that we do have in our communities. And so I think that it is, um, authentically entering into conversation, but listening. Like I think that as white leaders, it's really important for us to listen to our colleagues of color and, um, you know, create space for all these diverse voices mm -hmm. to come forward. For, for me with Intersection, I know I've been on a learning journey with this very much so because at first I, I, I did kind of come at it from the programming side and I thought, okay, well, we're commissioning diverse uh, composers. We're programming all kinds of diverse works. 
sorry, my nose is sniffly. <laughs> um, but, you know, our musicians on stage still didn't reflect that diversity. Right. And so that was something for us to acknowledge, like we need to do better about who is actually performing on stage. And so then of course, you know, well, does our board reflect that diversity? Does our staff reflect that diversity? Does our audience reflect that diversity? And how are the ways in which little barriers that might seem little like, um, venue location and can people get there in relation to transportation is it accessible from a you know for transportation or i might think 25 dollars is affordable for a ticket but somebody else may not think that you know and so really trying to look at every layer of our organization um and interrogate every layer of our organization and also to make a commitment to the work like we have intentionally as a board said we are committed to this work of becoming a more equitable organization mm -hmm. and being very open about that. Yeah. Um, one final thing I'll just say is that we've been intentional too about trying to create lasting partnerships with colleagues um, that share those values. For example, I mentioned earlier Fisk University, but Coral Arts Link is a youth chorus we work with and we do a program every year called Upon These Shoulders, which is really looking at social justice issues and putting that forward in our programming. And we do that every year. We've said, this is an, a program we're gonna put forward every year. Um, so I think baking in those partnerships to your organizational DNA so that you are committed to it in the long term, And it's not just like, a, oh, we did that program this year, you know, but that you know you're gonna continue to have that be a part of your ongoing work. Right. Mm -hmm. I have a, a question sort of related to this. So you mentioned the performers on stage reflecting the diversity as much as the programming or anything else. In a traditional orchestral setting, auditions for the orchestra are behind a screen. What can we do, maybe even before we get to the point of the audition itself, what can we do to see more diversity on stage in the traditional concert hall setting? Yeah, I mean, this is a conversation that is um, very much having a reckoning right now in the field. I think there was a recent New York Times um, article that circled around this question and spoke with different, um, you know, performers of color and had their perspective in terms of that answer. Um, so I don't I don't know the answer, you know, but I think that um, that some of the things I've seen the Nashville Symphony do, for example, they have an Achella Rondo program that is trying to address the pipeline issue mm -hmm. yeah. of, um, you know, making sure that there is the talent in place mm -hmm. so that, you know, um, we have more diversity right. behind the screen. But I just think that it, there is no one simple solution. There are so many layers to that, you know, because oftentimes I've heard from colleagues of color that, um, you know, is the orchestral environment even an environment that is welcoming where right. um, someone of color might want to be a part of that ensemble? You know, do they feel welcome once once they're there? You know, so I think um, there's the audition process, there's the pipeline, which is its own discussion. And then there's the whole, but are we creating a, a, an orchestral institution that even is, you know, deconstructing that white power and really creating right. an opportunity for artists of color to right. be part of that community in a powerful way where they can assert their voice and, yeah. and artistic identity, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I, it's a multi-layered thing, <laughs> but um, I, I can try to send that New York Times article yeah. if I find Absolutely. it out where you can pin it on the I was going to say, we'd love to link it. We'd yeah. love to link it yeah. to this yeah. episode. I have a very big question here. Pandemic or no pandemic, or or you can address either or both. Where do you see the orchestral field going in the future? Hmm. Um. I I don't. I'm hesitating because I think that that's such a big question. You know, it's like, um, are we talking about? like the music that we play, the way people are engaging with this music. I mean, I think that um, 
I think it would be worth kind of rolling back that question to say, like, how do people engage with music in their daily lives? Mm. I teach a class at MTSU, for example, and which is Middle Tennessee State University. And uh, we were having a robust conversation about, well, is something music or not? And we were talking about John Cage, four minutes and 33 seconds, which, as you know, is essentially silence for four minutes and 33 seconds. And the one of my students said, well, that's not music because I can't play it on my iPhone. And I said, so then it's something only music if it can be played on your iPhone. And so it just, you know, again, this idea of, of how technology has permeated the way in which we are engaging with mm -hmm. the arts and with musical experiences. Um, and so so I don't know what the future of the orchestra is. <laughs> I think that um, I'm I'm glad that the pandemic um, has allowed um, the opportunity to kind of shake things up a little bit, and um, and I'm I hope that um, it is it is the best of all of these things coming together <laughs> right. as we look forward to, right. to orchestras. It's a very vague answer, but I think mm -hmm. it's just because I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. a, it's a big question. And of course, one that all of us are going to be reckoning with going forward, especially those of us like Rachel and I, who are in the relative dawn of our careers, of our professional careers. And, I, and just, oh, by the way, to clarify for the audience, John Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds is a piece that on the sheet music is uh, three movements, Roman numeral one, two, and three, that all say tacit underneath, which it means silence. And it's essentially four minutes and 33 seconds where the music of the piece is the, are the, the sounds that happen in the hall around the silent performer sitting on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind of finishing out this, this conversation, um, this, I mean, we're, the podcast is called Orchestrating Change because it became very clear to us at the Canton Symphony that there was change that needed to be had and that we as an all-white staff um, who are from pretty kind of similar backgrounds, we do not have the answers to what is the best solution to how for how to orchestrate change. So from your perspective of, of, of what you think would be the answer of how do we move our organizations for forward into a future that is more inclusive and just more welcoming to our communities at whole? I think that, um, Well, I'm just going to say, I think we have to dismantle this white supremacy that permeates through our industry. Um, I think that that manifests itself in a variety of ways in um, in the music we play and, and the places we play, all of these things. So how do we dismantle that? I mean, um, I think that this shared power is important. You know, this idea that um, by lifting up the voices of 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 um, my colleagues of color, um, that's beautiful and amazing. And I have the opportunity to learn and grow and hear these diverse voices. And it's not about, um, it's not something to fear, you know? It's, it, I think sometimes we can, as a, as a white leader in the conversation I was having later, one of the questions, uh, yesterday of the conversation I was having, one of the, the questions was, you know, what do we fear about um, this potential change that we're discussing, right? And so people said, oh, well, you know, the, the potential fears could be, maybe we're alienating donors. Um, maybe we're giving up some power, you know, maybe these these things, right? And um, a lot of those potential things we fear are kind of individual experiences as opposed to the benefits to our community that are gained through the diversity um, that that we that we can can have in our future. And I think the other thing too is like, look, let's be real. I mean, today composers are diverse. Like there are voices from Oliver. This is not just like, whoa, um, let's, you know, cause I think the narrative of like, um, oh, there haven't been artists of color in classical music. It's like, no, they've been there. They just haven't um, been part of what 
the center lifts up, you know? And so I think that that is important to say too. There are so many, I mean, the Sphinx organization, it's an amazing yeah. organization mm -hmm. and entity. And so um, this is now, this is today. This is not like 10 years from now, right now. It's just about um, kind of, I don't know, I just, just, embracing that right. you know um yeah. so yeah i don't know that's uh, this is this is tricky stuff to reckon with too yeah. i mean i think which is why you know these conversations are difficult and i'm thankful for you guys for having them and asking these questions and so it's not about having one answer it's about being willing to engage in the conversation mm -hmm. um well yeah. kelly we so so appreciate you being the first to have this conversation with us and for giving us your time and insights into all of these difficult topics today. So yeah. appreciate you being here. Yeah. It's been it's been an absolute joy. And I and I, I really hope that our our listeners uh, really take a lot away from this conversation and and and, and really ingrain it in, in themselves and take it into their own listening practices and their own musical practices, wherever they're at, wherever they're at. Thank you for letting me be here. I've had a great time. And, uh, you know, just in one closing thought, I'll say, I mean, with Intersection, since the uh, pandemic began, we've been sending out composer peaks every week. We've been introducing our audiences to new composers. And so I think what I would invite everyone to do is to just um, open yourself up to new music, new experiences, new perspectives, because I think, um, as you discover these new composers and these new artists, um, whoever they are and wherever they may come from, um, it's it's just there's such amazing music out there, <laughs> you know, and I think it just enriches us as human beings and as artists. And I always just I think that music discovery piece is such a core central part of what we all do as, as humans. Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, this has been wonderful. This has been an absolute joy. Thanks. Kelly Corcoran, the cool. founding artistic director and conductor of Intersection, flexible contemporary music ensemble based in Nashville, Tennessee, formerly assistant conductor here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra from 2004 to 2007. Kelly, thank you again for being with us today. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.